This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Kim Riddleberger is an outstanding figure in the contemporary Reformed world for a few reasons. You might know him as the co-host of the White Horse Inn for 25 years and a contributor to Modern Reformation magazine. You might also know him for writing two excellent books on Christian eschatology or for his fine work on B.B. Warfield. I'll mention the title in a minute. But for decades, he has been a full-time pastor. While he's done all these other things, his full-time vocation has been to enter a pulpit twice every week to announce the gospel and the law and to administer the sacraments, and to work with the elders in using church discipline, and to attend consistory meetings, meetings with the uh, elders, and meetings with the elders and the deacons, and to do counseling sessions, and to teach Bible studies, and to make hospital visitations and home visitations, and all the things that faithful shepherds do with their flocks. So now, after more than 25 years, Kim is retiring from full-time pastoral ministry at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. He's a fourth-generation Californian, a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, where he has served on the board and served as a visiting professor, and where he will, we're glad to say, continue to serve as a visiting professor. He did his Ph.D. on uh, B.B. Warfield, which he has uh, since published. He did that with Richard Muller. He's, as I say, author of multiple volumes, contributor to many more, the most recent of which is Reformation Theology in 2017. He's published a commentary in 1 Corinthians in the Lectio Continua series. That was in 2013. And the volume on B.B. Warfield is The Lion of Princeton, B.B. Warfield as Apologist and Theologian. And he published that with Lexham Press in January of 2015. He's married to Mickey, who is a saint, and he has two adult sons, and you can see him writing online at kimriddleberger.squarespace.com. Hi, Kim, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you again. Good to chat with you. Well, it's been a while, and it, it seemed like this was a good time to talk for the reason that I mentioned, you know, your retirement, but let's postpone that just in case the listener has been in a cave for 25 years or maybe is new to the Reformed faith and isn't as aware of your work as he should be. Let's start from the beginning. So you've been leading people to the Reformed faith for a long time, but you yourself didn't grow up in the Reformed Church, like a lot of us. So tell us that story. How did that happen? How did you become a Reformed pastor? I grew up in the uh, Grace Brother movement, which was an offshoot of the old German Baptist. It was the evangelical wing. My family had been for generations in the Grace Brethren Church, which was largely dispensational as it became more evangelical and less uh, pietist. Embraced the dispensational premillennialism that was common in evangelicalism, very much an expository kind of a church. So I grew up hearing the scriptures, loving the scriptures, and so on. My parents owned and operated a Christian bookstore. Some of you may remember it was at Knott's Berry Farm. And so I grew up in the belly of the beast, as it were. I grew up in the evangelical subculture with all the music and contemporary Christian music and all the hokey devotionals and all the rest of it that characterized evangelicalism at that time. And it started one day when a gentleman had delivered our stuff out of the Knott's warehouse, I walked over to the book rack and started bugging me about the end times Bible prophecy books we carried. And it wasn't long before he had me pinned in a pretzel and I couldn't get out of it. And it just angered me to no end that I couldn't answer this guy. So that got me started. 
he ended up talking me into going to Christian Discount Bookstore. And some of you may remember that chain. It was very much a Puritan and Reform bookstore. And on the way out, two things. I found on sale a book entitled The Bibliography for B.B. Warfield. And it had everything Warfield ever published in topical and chronological order. It was on sale for a buck. I thought, oh, why not? And then next to that was a set of tapes by Donald Gray Barnhouse on Tulip. Of course, maybe you know Barnhouse was the predecessor to James Boyce at 10th President of Philadelphia. I had heard my dad talking about Barnhouse, how much he liked him, and how he would travel around to go hear Barnhouse when Barnhouse was in town. So the Tulip series absolutely rocked my world. I had never heard anybody explain the five points of Calvinism before. I recall sleepless nights. I'd wake up and think of a passage, and what about this? Go find a resource and come back. Oh, it does rather lend itself in the reform direction. So over a period of about three years working in the bookstore, I ended up starting to think about Reformed theology, still in the Evangelical Free Church. And in Orange County here, back in the late 70s, the go-to radio program, the water cooler show that everybody talked about the next morning, was Walter Martin's Bible Answer Man. Walter was really popular, controversial. He'd have a JW theologian on. He'd have a Mormon elder, stake president, and then just slaughter him. So always discussion about that. But Walter's theology was kind of a mix of evangelicalism and Calvinism, and he's the guy that coined the phrase Calmenian, which was just like a mule, you know, it's just awful, it's not going to reproduce. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, during his show, this eccentric Lutheran fellow named John Warwick Montgomery advertised a new Christian law school starting in Orange County called the Simon Greenlee School of Law, and Walter was going to teach there along with Dr. Montgomery, so I signed up and went, and uh, I ended up being the first student, the first graduate. And along the way, I met this rather interesting Lutheran fellow named Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, and Rod and I became very good friends. It was Rod who advised me, you ought to start reading B.B. Warfield. And I recall him, I had that index of all the Warfield stuff, and that was the entry point for me into the writings of Warfield. So I was following that track, taking classes, and upon graduation, Dr. Montgomery and Dr. Rosenblatt took me out to lunch. I'm the first ever graduate, so it was kind of an honor, and I was just thrilled to be out with them. And during lunch, Dr. Montgomery looked at me and said, we'd like you to pursue a graduate theological degree and come back and teach at Simon Greenleaf. After I picked myself up off the floor, I said to them, well, you know, Talbot Seminary is just up the street. I can go there. And Montgomery looked at me and said, if you go to Talbot, the deal's off. <laughs> <laughs> Westminster's opening a seminary in California. I think they started this year or the next year. You need to go there. If you go there and come back, we'll, we'll let you teach. So that was the career-changing path for me. I always assumed I grew up running the family business. I always thought I would be in the field of retail and kind of small business owner. And at that moment, my life changed. So here are two Missouri Synod Lutherans sending me to Westminster Seminary in California. Well, God bless them. So that's when it started, yeah, when they sent me to Westminster. And Westminster, it was close to the start of the semester, and they moved all kinds of stuff. I made transcripts in, and, and I was there, and they were really gracious. And I commuted from Orange County to Escondido for three years, four times a week. And I worked full-time. I was married. So it was like being in the Army. It just was brutal. And um, I did it and got out and... It was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. I look back on those days very, very fondly. 
I'm especially grateful that in the providence of God, I was able to commute for three years and didn't get a single ticket. <laughs> well, yeah, and you weren't involved in a multi-car pileup on the 405 or the 5. Oh, thankfully that too, yeah. There were a few traffic stoppages, but it wasn't near as bad. The traffic wasn't back. You get down to the seminary from Buena Park in 90 minutes. And when I say seminary, I'm meaning the old place in San Marcos, the industrial concrete tilt-up place, the office building, because the campus had hadn't been completed yet, and I, I was the final year at the campus where it is now on the other side of Escondido. So you are one of the earliest students, right? I am. I was a classmate of folks you may know, like Steve Baugh and uh, Charles Hill. So there were a couple of uh, illustrious classmates, and everybody knew in class that Steve Baugh was going to go on to be a great Greek <laughs> teacher. Yeah. No question, oh, this guy's going to come back and teach. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, that's yeah. right. We used to pester him all the time. I remember uh, trapping him or finding him in the foyer of the library. I was reading Ephesians with Al Winnie and uh, a couple of other guys, and I was stuck in Chapter 2. And I couldn't understand the grammar, what was going on. And I just walked up to him and I said, hey, Steve, there's a string of accusatives here. And uh, I'd never seen that before. And he said, oh, well, that's this and this. <laughs> and uh, so that you were right. That's the kind of giftedness that he had. By the way, this is pure trivia and probably no one cares, but he's changed his mind as to why Paul does what he does at the beginning of Second Corinthians. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> All right. But anyway. We're all entitled to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, he's still learning. So there you are in the early days of Westminster Seminary, California, in San Marcos, as you say, in an office building, industrial complex. What was seminary like in those days? Well, it was rigorous, for one thing. I had gone to Cal State Fullerton, and then Simon Greenick wasn't academically, although Montgomery was really pressed us, and we had to defend our dissertation in public, our master's thesis. So I was kind of prepped for it, but it was really rigorous, difficult. And working full-time and commuting made it really tough. And thank goodness for cassette tape, because I could tape the classes and review them to and from school, which helped a lot. Uh, it was a much different school then than it is now. Meredith Klein was absolutely brilliant, but it was very difficult for me to understand him. I was still kind of a functional dispensationalist, even though I was reading Reformed Theology, and his Kingdom Prologue material was really beyond my grasp at the time. It was foreign and really provocative to me, and the more I went through it and began to untangle it, the better and better it got. But that was really a struggle at first. That was a whole new way to read the Bible. I had quite a few classes. I think the most classes I had was with Professor John Frame, who is a very mild-mannered man, and as you, many of you know, he's widely published now and is a somewhat of a provocative figure in the Reformed tradition, and then had Dr. Bob Godfrey for several classes and got to know and love Dr. Godfrey, and I consider him, he probably will blush, I consider him my hero for putting up with me, and then Strimple taught uh, the systematic theology class, and Dr. Strimple had been very much in my predicament just before encountering John Murray, and so he was very patient and very sympathetic to me and did a lot to move me along. But it was a different school. It was not as confessional as it is now. There were a lot of new life kind of movements burgeoning, and that was attracted to me at the time since I thought Calvary Chapel was still pretty much okay and hadn't really embraced Reformed ecclesiology. And so I was still on my journey. There was enough evangelical stuff there that I was able to kind of adapt to Reformed theology without having to have this massive shift in my ecclesiology. I was still able to attend my evangelical church. I was, it was comfortable, even though I was going through this really difficult theological change. By the time I had graduated, it was really clear that I had to be in a Reformed church. I couldn't stay in 
my evangelical free church anymore. And I recall a very difficult uh, conversation with my pastor whom I loved, and he just said, face it, Kim, you've become Reformed, and that's okay, and you need to be in a Reformed or Presbyterian church, and, you know, go in peace. So that's how it ended up, and it was a like I said, a very surprising but very difficult three-year shift. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There's a piece of your early story that everybody might not know, and you've led me there very nicely. So you've decided, I need to be in a Reformed church. What did you do? Where did you go next? And what happened out of all of that? Well, interestingly enough, about that time, I met this very young student from Northern California at Biola, and... um you may know him by Scott Horton. <laughs> so in the Evangelical Free Church I was attending, there were several folks who had been corresponding with a professor at Biola, a dear man named Lowell Saunders, PhD in communications. One of these eccentric fellows that was just as kind as he could be, but you know, would come to class with cat hair on him, you know, one of those kind of guys. <laughs> just a delightful, dear eccentric fella. And he had been the point guy for the Reformed Episcopal Church out of Philadelphia to start a congregation in Southern California. So some of us from the Free Church went to Biola and met with him. It's, oh, we're starting next Sunday, by the way, and um, I want you to meet this young man. He's going to be preaching. And I thought, what am I getting myself into? I don't even know anything about this church. I don't know. Lowell Saunders, an 18-year-old preaching? Come on. So (laughs) against a better judgment, I almost didn't go against my bitter judgment when, of course, that 18-year-old man was Mike Horton. And my wife describes it like the Clark Kent moment. He was young and, you know, smiley and friendly and just exuberant about Reformed theology. Got in the pulpit, and my wife described it as the Clark Kent into the phone booth moment, where when Mike got in the pulpit, it was just the strangest thing. It was, whoa, God's hand is on this young man. Wow. Yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, so... Mike and I became friends uh, about that time, and the bishop was looking for adult supervision for a congregation of violins trying to pretend to be Anglicans, and uh, decided that I should be the pastor, and so he pulled me aside and said, we're going to ordain you, and I said, what? No, we're going to ordain you, and we're going to ask you to take care of the kind of the organizational administrative side of this while Dr. Saunders and Michael Horton do the preaching and the teaching. Okay. So that's how I was ordained. I was completely out of left field, completely by surprise, never once thought I'd ever be a pastor, and ended up in this very bizarre (laughs) Reformed Episcopal Church, and uh, ended up with a good friendship with Mike Horton. Now, that congregation didn't remain in the um, Reformed Episcopal Church, right? Where did well, the Reformed Episcopal Church, yeah, that congregation really struggled after Mike and I, not not because we were gone, but it, it didn't know what, the, the Reformed Episcopal Church at that time was not really sure what it wanted to be. There was a group of low church Anglicans that essentially said, we're Presbyterians with a prayer book and the 39 articles. Then there was the Anglo-Catholic kind of influence coming in, and most of those were evangelicals who were converting to Canterbury, following the Canterbury Trail, and they were not as interested in the Reformation or Reformed Distinctives, as were the Reformed Episcopalians. So it was an odd situation. The congregation since is closed, and the Reformed Episcopal Church is now part of the larger Anglican community in America, and they are merged in kind of a union with Anglo-Catholic congregations. So um, it was very much a passing phrase, and a passing phase, and I I remember being at Westminster trying to explain this to Bob Godfrey. (laughs) And he just looked at me, and if you know Dr. Godfrey, he has this way of looking at you politely, and yet he's saying to you through his eyes, what are you doing? You know that look. Oh, oh yes, I do very well. I know it very well. And so it was like, I I don't think I can stay here. So 
I ended up uh, attending the local neighborhood Christian Reformed Church and came into the Christian Reformed Church via colloquium doctum. And um, White Horse Inn started around that time, so we started bringing a number of young families in the Christian Reformed Church. And uh, they were not happy to have all these Gentiles coming into their Dutch Reformed community and had a difficult time assimilating. And so, long story short, out of that early days in the Reformed Church and then the White Horse Inn getting all kinds of folks interested in attending Reformed churches, at some point, if you wish to hear the story, I'd be happy to tell you, Bob Strimple is responsible for it. Uh, Mike and I ended up uh, deciding we needed to start a Reformed Church here in the Orange County area. And that church eventually became Christ Reformed Church. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I, I think it's important for the listener to know that there's a history behind all of these things. And so people hear you on the White Horse Inn. They hear you doing interviews like these. Uh, they see you in print. Uh, everybody knows you as pastor of you know Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, which has had influence you know well beyond Anaheim and and um, in some ways, the influence has reverberated through what is now the classes that I'm in, classes Southwest U.S. You and I are in the same classes and in the United Reformed Churches. And so people look at Christ Reformed Church as a kind of a model, a paradigm. And uh, if you know the worship and, and the way things are done at uh, Christ Reformed Church Anaheim, and then you were to visit other churches, you would see not just in the URCs, but in the PCA and OPC and other places, you'd see the influence. And yet it's good for people to know that real people did start these congregations, and they started them the way that they often get started. In other words, it's easy to look at a place like Christ Reform and just think, well, it's always been here, it's always been this way, and um, you know, I could never do that. But in fact, you and Mike actually started a congregation with the intention of having a Reformed church. Well, when the White Horse Inn first went on the air, Mike gave out his home phone number the first night, and so the Horton family, Mike's their mom, uh, Joe, and dad, Jim, were sitting in the living room, the phone starts ringing, and people are inquiring, hey, where can we find a church that teaches the kind of stuff you guys have been talking about? So the Hortons dutifully collected phone numbers, and we called people back, and it became pretty clear that there was a large group of folks interested in a confessional Reformed church, that weekly communion, Heidelberg Catechism, Redemptive Circle Preaching, liturgy, Reformed liturgy, that kind of thing. So it ended up around that time that Mike invited Bob Strimple, who was still teaching at the seminary. He had just written a book on higher criticism and was going to defend the history of the resurrection for Easter. So we had him up for Easter Sunday, had dinner with him over the course of dinner. Dr. Strimple was hey, how's it going, guys? Well, not good. Here's the dilemma. We explained we had all these folks interested in Reformed churches. We were bringing them to the existing Reformed churches in the area, some Reformed, some Presbyterian. And it was really clear that these churches either weren't interested in assimilating these evangelicals into their midst because it was so much pastoral work, or they really didn't care. And we explained to Strimple that this is really awful. So he looked at Mike, looked at me, and said, these are Christ's lambs. You men must feed them. I looked at Mike, we made eye contact with, uh-oh, here we go again. <laughs> we approached the Christian Reformed Church. We told them what we wanted to do. We were still, you know, in the CRC. The URCNA hadn't started yet. We're just in the very opening phases of talking about doing something. So we went to the CRC, explained to them what we wanted to do, and they looked at us like we had three heads. really think that going to a liturgical service, in Reformed liturgy and using more the catechism and you think redemptive historical preaching is going to do better than the kind of you know, three-point practical stuff that you should have learned at Calvin? On and on and on, they just looked at us like we were crazy. So we started showing them the number of people that had 
call and look for churches, and that was a different story. We had a very heated but principled discussion about what church planning is, and we thought, well, we gave it our best shot, and they left, and it was amicable, but it had been really tense. Just it was a it was an honest difference of opinion about how to do this, and got the news like two or three days later that they had cut us a check to start a congregation here in Orange County. So we did. Yeah, we were working very closely with Ontario URC, which was our sponsoring church. And of course, we had close ties to Escondido and First Chino because those were very similar churches. They were in South County classes. We were in North County. So it was odd for us to have ties to churches, not in our classes. That was a a bit weird. Long story short, um, when the three churches we were close to, Ontario and Chino and Escondido, decided to leave the CRC, we felt... We don't even know what the fuck it's about. Uh, we're new to this, but we want to be with churches that are on the same page with us philosophically, that support us, that like to white our sin. So we left the CRC about nine months after we joined. And I'll never forget Pastor Andy Camiga, who was the pastor of the Escondido URC Church at the time. We approached him about, hey, we've got the money. We'd like to pay them back for the startup funds. He said, pay back the national money, but if you pay back the classical money, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> and he was concerned. You know, he was making the case that since they had contributed to church planting and had seen nothing, they wanted us to keep in those funds because Escondido felt like they'd contributed. So Chino and Ontario and Escondido are really responsible for Christ Forms beginning, and we've always been very, very grateful to them. Once we had our first service, it was packed. We had such a good group. We had to have two services from the beginning, which is really a pastoral problem. And uh, we quickly outgrew our facilities and uh, ended up leasing the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Anaheim uh, after our first three years and been there ever since. And it's been a very good facility for us. It's worked really well. We have a real good relationship with our landlords, and it's been really good. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You know, in 1979, the first faculty and administrators began assembling in San Marcos, California, to attempt to establish a confessional, biblical, reformed seminary in Southern California. Westminster Seminary, California. In 1980, 40 years ago this year, we held our first classes. A few years later, we moved to our current campus, 1725 Bear Valley Parkway in Escondido. Truth is, there were times when it seemed that we might not be able to carry on. But looking back over 40 years of God's faithfulness, with Samuel in 1 Samuel 7.12, we can say, Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. We are grateful to you, dear listener, for your prayers and your support. Pray with us as we, by God's grace, begin our next 40 years of educating pastors, missionaries, teachers, elders, and others for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and his church. That is an amazing story, and I think it's important for the listener to hear that, uh, as I said, the institutions that people associate with you, whether it's uh, you know, White Horse Inn uh, or whether it's Christ Reformed Church, that these things didn't just happen, but that people made decisions and they took risks in order to establish these institutions so that there would be a place for people to hear the confessional reformed faith and to see the confessional reformed piety and practice actually worked out and that your commitment to that actually led you to withdraw from one denomination and to join a fledgling denomination, which this year is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Yeah, we were smart enough to know 
who in the Christian Reformed Church was on the same page with us. We didn't know what the issue was about. It was, at the time, women in office, but I could tell it was a lot more than that. It was really about biblical authority. And when our founding church left, it was easy to go with them. So we were, I think, the last into the CRC in our classes and the first out. <laughs> we were able to complete our move so easily because we had no ties to the Christian Reformed Church, but we did have ties to local congregations. So I think for those folks listening who are interested in seeing a Reformed Church, work with your local churches. Uh, find the area Reformed Churches nearby you and start talking with them, and you'd be surprised at how much help and wisdom and guidance they can offer you. And if you uh, are beyond commuting, if you can't make the commute to one of these churches, at least stay in contact with them. They like to plant churches. Most Reformed Churches do. Most Reformed Churches have resources and wisdom they'd like to help. But they need a viable group and, you know, start networking with your friends and get 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 people together and then approach one of these churches and say, here you go, help us. And that's how we got started. I want people to be really clear about the fact that we worked for two years before Christ would open its door. So this isn't a miracle thing where you, you know, open the doors, turn the lights, and people show up. There's a lot of planning that goes in. If you do the planning well and are in contact with other churches who will help you, you should be ready to go after a couple of years, 18 months or so on. And you and I both know of a lot of churches that have done that and a lot of churches that have been started because of people doing that very thing. And prayer and outreach, obviously, being on the radio in Los Angeles, you guys were on a couple of stations. Yeah, we were on KKLA here, and then uh, we went national after five years. Okay. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it was about a five-year local run here. On, and, but KKLA at the time was, you couldn't even get an availability. There was no open slot. We ended up at 9 o'clock on Sunday night because nobody else wanted it. And if you click on their website now and look at their availabilities, they're selling B-Pollen, you know, 80% of the time because people just don't <laughs> the radio. Anymore. Well, yeah. So it was a really difficult time. We thought, who's going to listen to us at 9 o'clock Sunday night? But providentially, that worked out to be the best possible time because the folks who were listening weren't the general audience that KKLA had who wouldn't have liked what we were doing. Yeah, I was going to say, in the providence of God, it worked out wonderfully um, because sure you guys were talking about things that were important that folks hadn't heard. It wasn't your typical evangelical radio fair, and you weren't doing uh, you know, 12 lessons on uh, prophecy and or uh, I remember you know I, I was working in Christian radio in 1980 you know playing music and playing tapes and uh, I heard all of the stuff there's a good Yiddish word for that for a lot of the stuff that we were broadcasting schlock yeah. was yeah. A, is a good Yiddish word for it you know preaching uh, Kenneth Copeland you know, we ran the gamut. In fact, I was uh, listening to Chuck Smith every day for quite a while and then playing the very same kind of music that you were probably selling. Yeah, exactly. At, uh, <laughs> at, the, at the bookstore, Chuck Gerard and Maranatha and all that stuff. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And here you guys are on the radio making Reformation available to American evangelicals who had never heard it. I think that's really important what the White Horse Inn did and is doing, but particularly in those early years, you guys established a beachhead. And so I, I want to ask you about this. Sometimes people say, well, you guys spend too much time trying to reach evangelicals and not enough time trying to reach the lost. I'm sure you've heard that objection. How do you respond to that and help the listener understand what you guys were doing was so important? 
That's a really good question, and yeah, we've heard it a lot. Mike's answer was always, well, we're not a ministry, we're a radio program. So the first distinction to make is we're doing a radio format with a panel because that's the best way to communicate information. And by communicating information, you're not only speaking to those evangelicals who need to see their churches recover, at least a discussion of what the gospel is and how it ought to be proclaimed, how church life ought to be ordered. But when non-Christians overhear that, it's important for them to realize that there is something about the old evangel, the old five-sola evangelicalism that really does transcend evangelical pop and subculture. So it was really refreshing to hear from folks who would say, you know, I was going to so-and-so mega church, and I got tired of having programs driven down my throat. I got tired of being told that, you know, the practical is more important than the theological, and here's what I need to do to keep my kids off drugs, have a successful marriage, and to have a better business plan. I wanted to go and hear Jesus died for my sins, and I wasn't hearing that. So we heard that over and over and over again from nominal evangelicals who were wanting a place where Christ was preached. And you have to get the message right before you get it out. It's just vital, because you end up, as the blind shepherd leading the blind, you end up with no direction, you follow the cultural crowd. And I'll never forget the Whiterson producer, Shane Rosenthal, going at it, friendly but intense, with the head of the church planning branch in the Christian Reformed Church. And he was saying, well, it's so important to be contemporary because you reach young people. And Shane said, well, let me tell you about that. I'm, what, 19 or 20 at the time he was? He said, contemporary to you is your FM radio station. Contemporary to me is Seattle Grunge. So if you get on that horse, you're going to always have to struggle to keep up with the current culture. The whole thing's going to have to reinvent itself year after year after year, or trend after trend after trend. And what I think was attractive to non-Christians about what we were doing the White Horse Inn, and there were not as many, of course, as evangelicals listening, but there were some, and they made the same point. This has substance. This is about things that really matter. This is not about the trivialities of having a better this or happier that. This is really about a real savior who walked the earth, who really died on a cross, who was really bodily raised from the dead. This is not what we're hearing elsewhere in evangelicalism. So it had a, I want to use a political term, but it had a gravitas to it, a truth claim about it that was compelling to a lot of people, evangelicals and non-Christians alike. A lot of folks early on came from Rome and the same kind of point. We're in a church that's bureaucratic, that you know does a great job with social services, but isn't really concerned about my sin problem and doesn't really have the offer, the answers I need to my guilt. I keep going every Sunday after Sunday and do the Mass over and over and over again, but I still feel terrible. What do I do? So we attracted a lot of Catholics at the beginning, and I really think the initial kind of demographics of Christ Reformed Church really reflect that. We had probably about 10% non-Christians who just had become Christians through White Horse Inn, about 10% former Roman Catholics, and then everybody else was out of the mega evangelical Bible churches who just weren't hearing the gospel, and who had grown up on the gospel, who'd grown up on exposition preaching. And then those churches had stopped doing expositional preaching in favor of topical stuff, and then the topical stuff being less and less removed from the biblical text. And now it's just pastor so-and-so giving you Aesop's fables or principles he got from some management textbook or, or even a, a self-help book the week before. And half the sermon was him talking about the stuff he'd done in the past week, or the books he read, or the movies he'd seen, and you know, what use is that. So to answer your question, yes, you start with the evangelicals, and we did, and there was, a, I, I think, a, a wonderful time where we really were making a dent in kind of the evangelical subculture. But at the same time, non-Christians overheard that conversation and really felt compelled to consider this seriously. This is something you can't take lightly and just dismiss. This is something you have to believe or you have to self-consciously reject. 
And I think that's a good message to send to non-Christians, frankly. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And you didn't stop with the radio program. It was a conduit to the institution that Christ himself established. That is the visible institutional church. Yeah. So that the radio program wasn't an end in itself. Yeah, I think that by making the case that this was not a ministry, that it was a radio program, and that what you were hearing here was worked out in your local church, which is something that Mike drilled into me from the very beginning. I didn't think in those categories because I was still kind of on the fringes, just moving really into Reformation church life and kind of figuring it all out. And Horton kept pounding that theme, this has to lead to people being in churches. And of course, our Lutheran friend, Dr. Rosenblatt, picked right up on that, and he was thrilled to hear that emphasis as well. And if you know the Lutheran world, you know that 1517 is now up and going, and that's kind of a Lutheran equivalent of early White Horse Inn, and it's doing very, very well. And we have Dr. Rosenbaud, I think, to thank for that. And then Ken Jones, who joined us well, five or six years in as a London Baptist guy who was in a general Baptist denomination. He's now in Miami with a, a large and thriving church and a radio show. So Horton, I think, was absolutely brilliant to make that call, and I'm thankful he did because Upon realizing the importance of it, I was fully on board and ended up uh, where I did. So, again, the providence of God is strange and perplexing at the time, but upon looking back, you just praise Him and thank Him and marvel at the things He's done without even realizing it at the time. And there you found yourself in the pulpit week after week, preaching the law and the gospel, administering the sacraments every week, uh, the Lord's Supper particularly, but baptism, right, as you had converts and initiating the children of believers into the visible covenant community. And you, as you say, you never expected to do that. You expected to in- inherit your parents' business and sell books, which, again, in the providence of God, who knew that Amazon was yeah, exactly. <laughs> or who knew exactly. what right? Exactly. I mean, we know what's happened to the local bookstore, so uh, bookstores come and go. Yeah, they do. But the Church of Jesus Christ is still here. Yeah, yeah. the Church is going to remain, and, and I wrote once in a piece that Orange County is kind of the burned-over district of the modern world. We've had all these from Calvary Chapel to Melvin and Christian Center to the Christ Cathedral, we've had all different kinds of evangelical megachurches here, and they've all kind of had their phase. They've all kind of come and gone. And yet the Reformed churches that were planted in the 1950s when Orange County was just kind of beginning to boom, those churches, Presbyterian and the Reformed churches, they're all still here. And their sidewalks have, you know, too many weeds in the cracks and a little roundup. The churches could probably use a little coat of paint. But those churches are still here, and they're still preaching the gospel. They're still caring for God's people. They're marrying and burying and counseling, as churches are supposed to do. And after all the tumult and all the bells and whistles and all the loud noise and the big revivals and so on, they're still there, just quietly ministering in their neighborhoods. People drive by and don't notice them. And yet what goes on inside is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. And your whole perspective changes when you see the church as the outcome of the gospel. I remember that series that you published, and uh, the listeners looking for that, it's at kimriddleberger.squarespace.com. And someday, I hope that you will gather up those pieces and put them together and uh, and do something with them, because that was an excellent window into the history and the sociology of Southern California evangelicalism and what happened to it. and. As people say in politics, what starts in California doesn't stay in California. And that is true of American evangelicalism, too. It is. And to put an exclamation point on that, I would have to completely rewrite that as a history of Orange County because all those movements have come and gone. Yeah. They're all gone. I think 
the answer to the dilemma that they'd posed. They're going to establish an entrepreneurial business for the founder, maybe for the second generation, by the third generation, because they so tapped into pop culture. When pop culture moves on, they got nothing. And all those churches, despite all the things that they did, and there were some really good things, I think especially the first wave of the Jesus people, there were a lot of real conversions there. A lot of those guys are reformed pastors now. There's some great stuff in there. But as the thing went on farther and farther, they got farther away from the gospel, and you ended up with you know, the Christ Cathedral, which is now a Catholic yeah. diocese center with relics. So it's a cathedral church. There's some symbolism in that, isn't there? That uh, yeah, Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. The, the Crystal Cathedral was the model for a lot of the modern church growth movement. And uh, a lot of what Bob Schuler was doing was picked up and imitated all over Southern California. The power of positive thinking. It was on television. He had celebrities, people who didn't even identify as Christians, celebrities and endorsing him. And I remember watching Bob Schuler long before I was a Christian on TV on Sundays. We were, you know, we were not in church. And I just thought it was kind of interesting entertainment. It was. And so when, when, if you lived in Southern California and grandma was coming in from Michigan or Iowa or, you know, Florida, when grandma came to Southern California, she wanted to see the Crystal Cathedral. It was along with Knott's and Disneyland. I mean, you came to Orange <laughs> County, you drove by the Crystal Cathedral because it was, you know, she'd seen it on TV and it had that kind of reputation. So all of that's gone. The last big church was Saddleback, and it's become. You know, some of the, the sad things that have happened to Rick Warren and his family and so on, and the tragedies they've experienced. But that movement also has run its course, and you never hear people mention that church like it was mentioned, say, 10 years ago. And when you speak of the religious climate here, there's really nothing that you can mention that's new and exciting in terms of that evangelical buzz. And yet the same Reformed churches that were here before it all started are still here and still preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, burying the dead, marrying Christian couples, baptizing their children, instructing them in the faith, doing the pastoral counseling, doing the hard work of ministry. And it's as though, you know, time had stood still for them that they've been doing the same thing all along. Because they're not indebted to or hitched to, they haven't hitched their wagon to, whatever popular cultural fad yeah. is dominating the culture now. So now after all these years of pastoral ministry, being on the radio, writing books and all these things, you're getting ready to hang up your Genevan robe. I am. After 25 years, it's time. I, physically, a church pastor is required to do a lot. There are a lot of late nights. There are a lot of long hours throughout the week. It's a 60-hour work week plus. The meetings are difficult because there are weighty and difficult things discussed. There are lots of times of joy and refreshment that, that give you the endurance to, to go on. And, and I'm one who, in the province of God, have not had the struggles that some pastors have had. We've had a lot of tears and a lot of difficult issues through the years, but God has spared me from some of the things I know my pastor friends have endured. I'm very, very thankful for that. And I don't know if I could have done at Christ Reform, anywhere else what I did there. To put it another way, I'm uniquely suited for that particular church and don't think I would have been able to translate that anywhere else just because of my, my skills and, and gifts and so on. I was talking to Dr. Horton at our 25th anniversary service here a couple weeks ago, and we looked at each other and, you know, got teary-eyed because we were at the first Sunday and thinking about our parents and, you know, those that have gone on that were there the first Sunday. And um, it dawned on me that I expected to be the seminary professor, and I thought Mike would end up being the James Boyce of the modern time. He'd pastoring a large Reformed President Church in a large city someplace with a big you know, conference ministry and so on. And yet, in the province of God, he's the professor, and he was much better prepared for that than I. I mean, Mike's as brilliant as they come. 
And I ended up in a kind of a, a day-in, day-out situation where the nose is to the wheel a lot, and a lot of issues is preparation to preach and teach. And I'm a decent administrator, so I was much better suited for the kind of, I don't want to say boring, but it's repetitive kind of work. And I don't tire of that. I enjoy doing it. So it's a long grind, and I'm very, very thankful I've been able to do it. You know, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm very thankful that the Lord has given me health to make it through. And I'm in good health and ready to retire. And as uh, some of you may know, my two uh, daughters-in-law are both pregnant, and we're expecting a grandson and a granddaughter here early in the new year. So I'm looking forward to enjoying my grandkids. And um, I think it's Bob Godfrey who said he wasn't going to be retired, but he was going to retire but not be an employee. And I hope to be uh, employed at least part-time teaching and doing a few things. And uh, a lot of changes come at the Riddle blogs. So look for those. I'd like to spend some time writing and publishing some stuff that uh, needs to be updated or needs to be done. So I'm looking forward to doing that as well. So Well, we will be seeing you on campus. You will, Lord willing. That's our plan, and uh, we expect to have you continue teaching courses for us as long as the Lord permits. I hope so. so. I know you've been a great blessing to the students. Well, thank you, Scott. I, I really appreciate that. But let's put it this way, as long as you guys can stand me. <laughs> no, it's been a great blessing to have you on campus. And I know when you're at the center of all the things in which you've been involved, it might not be possible to grasp the effect that you've had on so many people. But I know I speak for many, many folks who've benefited from you, whether in print or by listening to your sermons online or by listening to the White Horse Inn or all of the above, that uh, the Lord has used you in wonderful ways, first of all, to make Christ known, which is the most important thing, but also to make the Reformation known in a nation where still it is largely unknown. And uh, the value of that really can't be overstated. Yeah. Well, we must keep on, keep on carrying on, huh? And I'm truly thankful and humble to the Lord for his preservation and giving me energy and strength to do all that. And one of the unsung heroes in all of this is my wife, Mickey, who has also you know, thrived in her career, but kept a really wonderful home and has done all of those difficult, hard jobs at church for 25 years without even so much as a complaint. And, um, you know, when Calvin's wife died, he said, well, she didn't hinder my ministry. And I, I look at that and I think, I wish you could have known Mickey because you just said something entirely different than that. I couldn't have done my work without my wife. And I'm really grateful and thankful to her for all her hard labors as well. Well, and the Lord has blessed you with a remarkable administrator, hasn't he? Over he has. I have the best church secretary in the world, Winona Taylor. We know her as the church lady, and uh, we met her back in the days of the White Horse Inn, first starting back in the days when uh, Christ Reform was first starting. We still did the academies here in Orange County regularly, and uh, Winona's been a godsend, and every church uh, would be lucky to have someone like her. And the fact that other churches know her as widely as they do just tells that story. And we've had to keep a number of them from Steve Stealing her from our midst, listening, <laughs> know who you are. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, she's going to at least stick around to help the, my successor get in, get in place. Well, Kim, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks, Scott. It was a delight. Brings back a lot of great memories. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.